Welcome to Becoming Multiplanetary. Uh, sorry for the late start today. We've had some real big issues with audio. We're trying something new. Uh, it looks great. It's just a lot of teething problems here. Uh, so I'm Rich LB, co-host of Becoming Multiplanetary. Uh, we're going to introduce the other hosts, and then we're going to go with our very special guest. So Kage, would you like to lead first? Yep. Uh, hi, everyone. I am Kage, one of the co-hosts of Becoming Multiplanetary here on the Total Space Network. Thank you for joining us. And with us today, we have... I'm Mikko, the host of Deep Drive Fridays, and we also have Graham. Take it away. Yeah, hi, everyone. Uh, I'm Graham, also known online as the Cosmobiologist or the professor of everything groovy. Uh, I love the word groovy, trying to bring it back. Uh, I'm a geochemist and mineralogist in training. Uh, my work focused on how we look for signs of life and how we study life's interaction with the environment in the polar regions of our planet but also how we look for life elsewhere. And I think for me, I've, I've always been kind of just wanting to know, are we alone? You know, wanting, wanting to be part of that, that larger question of what it means to be human here on earth and, and to wonder the bigger questions about what it means to be human in this cosmos. Awesome, thank you for joining us. Um, and also I just checked on the uh, stream and it looks like all of our audio is coming through. So we're good, <laughs> yay. Awesome. <laughs> Excellent. So uh, Graham, Dr. Lau, um, where, uh, just before we begin, uh, where are some of the places that our listeners can find you on uh, on social media, on your websites, and so forth? Uh, yeah. My, my primary website is cosmobiota.com. Um, I coined that term to mean the living matter of the universe. Uh, so you can find me there. You can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Cosmobiologist and on Facebook and LinkedIn at Astrobiologist. Great. Thank you for joining us. Happy to have you here. It's a pleasure so to join. Yeah, cool. So yeah, um, as was mentioned earlier, uh, today we are going to be talking about the uh, Perseverance rover, its payload, its, um, well, payloads, I guess, and also its instruments and its primary mission. So for those who have, I suppose, been maybe a bit under uh, a rock when it comes to uh, space news. In just a few days from now, actually, about four days from now, the Perseverance rover and its payloads will be entering the atmosphere of Mars and will uh, go through a uh, period known as the seven minutes of terror as they um, uh, go through the atmosphere, deploy the uh, parachute, drop the heat shield, and then uh, the most interesting part of this, use a power descent using... Um, a rocket-powered sky crane to find a landing location, lower the uh, Perseverance rover, uh, the uh, sky crane then flies away, and the Perseverance rover begins its mission. Um, yeah, so the, the first time that they did this was actually with the Curiosity rover. As a matter of fact, the Curiosity rover and Perseverance rover are a lot more similar than they are dissimilar. They have different payloads uh, or different uh, instruments and so forth, but the overall design of them is largely the same, uh, just with improvements that were made over time from the lessons that they learned with the Curiosity rover. But uh, Curiosity also uses Sky Crane, um, also uh, uh, is practically the same, at least in the, uh, the rough dimensions and so forth, and uh, the general function of how the rover uh, works, both uh, Curiosity and Perseverance. I think Perseverance is a bit heavier, though, isn't it? Slightly, yeah. Yeah. So, but it, it makes it makes sense too to copy a lot to use the same chassis and and to follow the same design for the for the power source because you save a lot of money that way. Yeah. 
Right, exactly. I mean, why why reinvent the wheel when you already have something that was uh, super successful the first time and still is successful today? So, yeah. Um, let me move my screen over a little bit. There we go. Yeah. So let's uh, let's quickly talk about uh, perseverance uh, just to get that out of the way. So uh, perseverance is about 2,260 pounds or 1,025 kilograms on Earth, whereas uh, on Mars, it will be about 866 pounds or 393 kilograms uh, since Mars is uh, it's a little over one third Earth's gravity. I think it's about like one fourth or something, a little bit between there, like 1.35 or uh, 0.35. I think 36 <laughs> or 40 percent. Yeah. <laughs> something, something like that. Yeah, so um, it's just a little bit lighter on the uh, surface of Mars. Um, not including the arm, Perseverance is about 10 feet long, 9 feet wide, and 7 feet tall, or in metric, about 3 meters long, 2.7 meters wide, and 2.2 meters tall. And the robotic arm is about 7 feet or 2.1 meters long. Um, included on the uh, Perseverance rover, there are uh, several different payload instruments. Uh, which weigh about 130 pounds or 59 kilograms, um, seven instruments in total, uh, which are the MAST Cam Z, Mars Environment Dynamics Analyzer or META, Mars Oxygen In Situ Resource Utilization Experiment, MOXIE, Planetary mm -hmm. Instrument for X ray uh, Lithochemistry, Pixel, Radar Imager for Mars Subsurface Experiment, RIMFAX, uh, Scanning Habitable Environments with Raman and Luminescence for Organics and Chemicals, Sherlock, and SuperCam. But that actually actually uh, skips over one particularly interesting instrument, and that is the Ingenuity drone, which has some of its own um, some of its own uh, instruments. I have to like release push to talk so I can scroll. So the Ingenuity drone, and this is this is for me personally the most interesting part of uh, the uh, uh, Perseverance rover. Um, not only the the search for uh, historical potential life on Mars, but the fact that they're going to do something. Uh, even uh, also just as revolutionary as looking for life on Mars, and that is they're going to try and fly a mini helicopter drone on the surface of Mars, which is particularly fascinating considering that atmospheric pressure on Mars is only on, on the surface is only about 1% of uh, what you would find on the surface of Earth. So very, very little uh, material for those blades to chew through. And even still, uh, they're going to try and fly a drone, which is about four pounds or 1.8 kilograms on Earth or 1.5 pounds or 0.68 kilograms on Mars. It's not very big. It's only 1.6 feet or 0.49 meters tall. And uh, the uh, fuselage is actually quite small. The, the body of the drone is 5.4 inches by 7.7 .7 inches by 6.4 inches or 13.6 centimeters by 19.5 centimeters by 16.3 centimeters. So not very big. It's It'll practically fit in your hand, just a little bit bigger than that. Um, and the rotors are four feet long or 1.2 meters long. And in order to chew through that very, very thin atmospheric pressure, they'll spin at roughly 2,400 RPM. Um, and the goal there uh, with the Ingenuity drone is to see, can they actually fly something like a rotocopter uh, on uh, uh, through the uh, uh, Mars atmosphere? And this is actually one of the particular reasons why they use a rocket-powered crane to lower uh, the uh, Perseverance rover, because the parachutes just don't really work 
uh, in, in in Mars. There's not much for them to grab onto. And on Earth, we have a pretty thick atmosphere. There's uh, plenty of uh, material for them to catch onto and slow a uh, vehicle's descent. Just doesn't work on Mars. So that's why they do use a parachute, but it's it acts more like a drogue chute, if anything else, just to slow the descent a little bit. And then they have to use a rocket-powered sky crane in order to uh, lower uh, the uh, payload and instruments because that's the only way really to the surface of Mars. Um, yeah, so a lot of information there to digest, but uh, let's go ahead and backpedal a little bit and talk about the scientific mission. So there are four parts to the scientific mission with uh, the Perseverance rover, and uh, there, there are actually four key science goals. Uh, first, determine if Mars ever supported life. Second, understand the processes and history of climate on Mars. Third, understand the origin and evolution of Mars as a geologic system, and four, prepare us for human exploration, actually becoming a multiplanetary species. So let's actually talk about that first one. The primary objective, the biggest, most primary objective of the Perseverance rover is to explore an astrobiologically relevant ancient environment on Mars to decipher its geological processes and history, including the assessment of past habitability. So they will be doing this by landing at the Jezero Crater, which is just slightly north of the equator of Mars. And it was chosen as a particularly good candidate because, and let me scroll up a little bit, um, it was uh, chosen as a particularly good candidate on the fourth landing site workshop on October 16th to 18th, uh, 2019, because it um, appears to have a dried up lake at the bottom of a river delta, which probably dried up about 3.5 billion years ago, but could have great potential for life on Mars. Um, NASA's uh, Odyssey ro uh, orbiter uh, showed a, uh, a lot of indications that this could be a really good place to explore. And um, maybe let's go ahead and pause here and talk about that. Um, Graham, um, you are the uh, resident cosmobiologist. So what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, it's a, it's a cool landing site. Um, I think a lot of us in the community in general are just super excited for Jezero. There are other, other sites across Mars that are really interesting. And as, as you mentioned, like we have landing site workshops where scientists come together. Uh, we have a few proposals for really good landing sites. Um, and then, you know, the community decides where the best place is to go, um, along with all of the engineers who can tell us, you know, if we can actually go someplace or not. Um, and with Jezero, you're right. So, so in this Noachian age, long ago on Mars, uh, named after Noah and the, the biblical idea of the flood, um, there was a lot of water activity on Mars. Well, it looks like maybe rivers flowed. They might, might have even been a, a sea or an ocean in the northern hemisphere. Uh, and so with Jezero, we have this area where at least one time, if not several times, there was a lake filling this crater. And when you look at the pictures, it's so cool because you can see on one side of the crater, you can see where what looks like a river flowed into the crater. And when it met this larger standing body of water, it created a large delta. And so material was flowing from Mars down through this river, coming out and meeting that lake and then dropping material down. And here on Earth, that's a really cool place to look for signs of life, for, for past activity of life, because materials flowing in that river can then get buried in that delta. And, and the delta itself could be a very good place for encapsulating the old Martian life if it was there. Uh, there's also another site on the other side of the crater where water was, was appeared to be flowing out of the crater. Uh, and so that's also a really good indicator that water was standing uh, inside of this crater as a lake. And there might have been several periods of this lake coming and going 
uh, through Martian history. And so that makes it a really cool place to look for signs of life. There's some awesome geology in general in the crater to explore. Uh, you know, there, there's going to be clays for us to look at. A lot of really interesting carbonate rocks, uh, rocks that have a, a, a carbon and oxygen together inside of them that are also really, really good at Earth, on Earth for preserving signs of ancient life. And so Jezero is a pretty sweet site. Absolutely. Um, I got uh, a couple of uh, uh, comments that my audio was a little bit quiet. Is it a uh, little bit better? I think it's better. Okay. It sounds okay to me. <laughs> All right, cool. Yeah, so um, let's actually uh, let's talk a little bit about how uh, Perseverance is going to do these explorations for uh, past life on Mars. Um, so, uh, Graham, could you uh, walk us through a little bit about the instrumentation that they're going to use for this and what kind of um, methods will they explore, uh, use to find uh, indications of past life? Absolutely. So and there's so many cool instruments on this rover, and they're not all, all – some of the instruments are, are really about other things besides looking for life. MOXIE is an in-situ resource utilization uh, test, and we have Ingenuity, which is really cool. Uh, the, the engineer from JPL who's going to fly – Ingenuity uh, gave a talk last night at the Planetary Society's Planet Fest, and it was just so cool hearing about what this thing is going to do. I hope we get all five flights, if not even more. Um, but if we even get just one flight, that's cool. But but yeah, one of the primary reasons to send Percy to Mars is to look for signs of ancient or maybe even extant life on Mars. And so some of the instruments that are really good for doing that are things like Pixel, uh, things like SuperCam. Um, which, you know, honestly, if you went back to like 1950 and told people that we'd be driving a rover that's heavier than a car or a small car uh, on Mars and it would have lasers in its cameras that would shoot the rocks from far away and it would tell us about the chemistry inside of those rocks, people would laugh you out of the room. And uh, that's so cool. But I, I have to admit that for me, the, the, the instrument that I'm most excited for is Sherlock. Um, I think... Getting a Raman spectrometer uh, that can do Raman as well as fluorescence, uh, fluorescence spectroscopy on Mars is, is a huge advancement. And, and for those watching, this is the first time we'll have Raman uh, on Mars. Uh, Raman is, is very similar to infrared uh, spectroscopy. Uh, it's, a, it's a similar kind of methodology, um, but the, the science is a little bit different. Uh, and this one, we will actually be using UV, a UV light, um, to then look at the, the chemistry uh, of the rocks in the surface around where Perseverance is driving. And with this UV uh, Raman spectroscopy, we can actually look for organics too and learn a bit about the organics. And so if there, there is life or if there was life in some of these rocks in that delta or in other regions of the crater at Jezero, uh, I'm really excited for, for, for Sherlock to have a chance to, to use its Raman spectroscopy to look at these things, to tell us the mineralogy and to tell us if there are organics there, what the organics are, and and this is a huge step forward for us from Mars. Not only not only that with the um, uh, with the Sherlock instruments, but uh, I also saw that there are two purposes for the microphones that are going to be on uh, Perseverance. Um, one of the things, and this is a really uh, exciting element of uh, Perseverance, is it will not only record its descent and landing. Um, on video, but also will have microphones active to record the audio of this. And on uh, SuperCam, one of the uh, they they have a uh, uh, microphone on SuperCam, and one of the purposes of it is also to listen for when they use the um, the laser instrumentation and burn bits of rock to listen for the sounds that it makes to uh, not only measure from a uh, uh, a various 
uh, electromagnetic wave or uh, um, infrared wave diagram as to how things are, um, uh, how the uh, the rock is uh, evaporating and what kind of materials it's releasing, but also listen for uh, how it sounds and use that as part of the measurement. That's really interesting. I, I never would have thought that listening to burning rocks would tell you about its components. And who knew? <laughs> yeah. I mean, and also just to hear the Martian winds. I mean, come how, how cool is that going to be? Uh, I really, I, I love meditation. And, and, and I, I think having a meditation track of Martian winds blowing for a while would be, would be just like so groovy just to sit there and just, just listen to Mars in the background. Have you heard that InSight managed to capture some like wind sound? I hadn't heard that actually. Um, that's pretty cool. Uh, I'll have to look into the file that they have for that. Um, Insights, you know, also a groovy mission that's also still happening, right? Um, I think sometimes people forget that like Curiosity is still active, Insight's still active. We have a bunch of orbiters that are still doing cool science, um, and then obviously we have a whole bunch of dead robots on the surface of Mars too. Uh, we actually got a question in the chat. Suppose Yara is asking, what is the maximum distance this spectroscope instrument can be used on? Does anyone know? For SuperCam, I'm, I'm not quite sure. It's got to be within within like 15, 20 meters at most. It's probably much closer than that. Um, for, for the Raman, for Sherlock, th these are samples that we're bringing into the rover. Um, so SuperCam is the only one that's doing this, this long range uh, spectroscopy. But we can look that up for, for sure and see what the distance is. Already ahead of you. <laughs> And um, we, we will also have links in the show notes for all the uh, things that we're talking about. I have to really give credit to NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory for the exhaustive documentation that they have provided about this entire thing. Anything that you could ever want to know about uh, the uh, Perseverance rover, about Ingenuity, about all of it, uh, they have exhaustive documentation, including even... Uh, detailed documentation about each and every individual instrument, um, how it works, how it, uh, what kind of things it measures, uh, how it measures those, um, just more more than you could ever want to know about it. So, um, yeah, a great job to the folks at uh, JPL for putting that together. Uh, that's um, really awesome of you guys. And if I can add to that, I think I think it's good that people remember that a lot of these these instruments, every single instrument that goes on one of these missions. That instrument has its own principal investigator or PI, the person leading it, but each instrument has its own team. There, there's a huge team of people. And it's not just from JPL. There's people around the world who are working on these instruments. Uh, Rimfax, for instance, has a lot of Norwegian scientists working on it, people from the ESA. Um, you know, we, have, we have people from Spain uh, who've been working on, on parts of this mission. Uh, there's a lot that goes into developing these missions and designing all the instruments. And the, when you start looking at like the papers when they come out, with all the science that we're doing, they usually have like these just huge like co-author lists, and that's because there's so many people involved in making it happen. Um, you know, as much as we like to like point to one really awesome person who's done a great job, I mean, these are really huge, huge teams of people who are coming together to make these things work. So I have an answer for Sapolch's question. Uh, it is uh, seven meters. Oh, that's pretty close. Okay, Tw twenty feet or seven meters. It the spectroscope yeah. ranges. Yeah, and circling back to Graham's thoughts uh, there's actually a finnish instrument on the rover too there's the barometer and another for humidity nice yeah i mean so like it's a huge team of people right from around the world and i, I think we're seeing that more and more now in the sciences and in every place not just on 
our space missions, but on things like gravitational wave observatories and, and you know particle colliders and all kinds of things. Like the, the teams are getting bigger and bigger because you need a lot of people with expertise from around the world working together to make these things happen. Yeah, absolutely. It's um. It- Gone are the days where you had uh, a bunch of uh, uh, flyboys that uh, were the the names of the missions. Uh, looking at uh, uh, Gemini and uh, Mercury and Apollo, uh, where everyone knows about uh, Neil Armstrong. Uh, no one really knows about who were uh, in the behind the scenes working on things. I mean, we do more and more nowadays, but uh, back then, not really. And nowadays, with uh, uh, just groundbreaking missions like this, it really is a enormous team effort, not just NASA, but you, uh, as you mentioned, uh, the European space agency is also part of this and, um, even smaller entities that are, uh, that have contributed to this. Um, I think the, the list of contributors of scientists that are working on this, that were just, that just contributed to, uh, perseverance is in the thousands. Um, and that's just the people that are working on the instrumentation. Then, if you take the engineers that have built this, it just grows exponentially. So, um, really amazing job, all, all of you folks that have been working on this. Uh, I'm I'm sure you're all proud of it, and uh, it's going to be really awesome to see this thing go through the seven minutes of terror and uh, do wheels down. And maybe actually, let's uh, let's talk about that. What's uh, what the seven minutes of terror, the timeline will look like? Well, yeah, actually, it's going to be a, one of those moments where like. A bunch of us watching around the world are just going to like hold our breath, basically, <laughs> as long as we can. I'm going to try my best to just be calm and, and breathe and, and relax and just try to visualize what this rover is going through since we can't, we can't have anyone standing on the surface of Mars taking a cool video of it. Um, but we have really, really beautiful graphics created by people at JPL to show us what this, this should look like. Well, it's perfect you say that because that's a perfect segue into video time, show and tell. So um, we've got the landing animations for Percy uh, queued up first. So if we're going to take a look at the landing animations and then we'll do a segment where we just talk about that later. So I will shift us over to the video screen uh, with the power of production. Uh, which, uh, what's the title of the first video that you're showing? It is, I will pull it up on stream now. Is that the uh, 7 Minutes to Mars video? It is the NASA Mars 2020 Perseverance rover landing animations. Gotcha. Alright, now let's try this and see how it goes.
Nice. Amazing video. Yeah, it'd be so cool to watch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, really. That's uh, that's just fantastic. I, um, credit goes to the uh, NASA Jet Propulsion Laboratory for that video and um, for the folks who who made that. Um, amazing job. The the uh, the animations are amazing and the uh, the audio. That's that's one of the crucial things is that we'll actually be able to hear these things. This will be the first time we'll actually be able to hear all of that and see did it match up with their prediction of it. Really excited for that. So um, let's talk about the timeline of what this is going to look like. Um, so there are a lot of things that will happen in succession with the uh, with the landing. Uh, so there is first what's called the uh, cruise se- uh, stage separation. So that is uh, all, all the times here are going to be in Eastern Standard Time. Um, that will be uh, that's six hours behind UTC, correct? No, five hours behind UTC. Uh, yeah, unless unless it's in daylight savings, in which case it's six, but five normally, yes. Yeah. So all these times will be um, add five hours to this to have the UTC time, so that you have uh, whatever time zone uh, that you're in uh, makes uh, easier conversion. Um, so first, cruise stage se- uh, cruise separation stage happens at three thirty eight p.m. Eastern. Um, this is actually where it begins the seven minutes of terror. Uh, so this is where the spacecraft uh, carrying the um, uh, Perseverance rover and all of its payload that includes in the first part of that uh, video. And actually, uh, maybe if you want to uh, queue through some of this or, or scrub through some of this, uh, Rich, as I'm uh, going through the timeline. Um, so that will be the first part where you have the capsule that is entering that includes the heat shield and the shell uh, that will enter in the atmosphere. So this will be coming in at about uh, 12,500 miles per hour. I don't have that in uh, converted to metrics. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, and that's where the uh, thrusters will begin firing in order to steer it towards its uh, landing target point. Uh, this is the point in which the, um, uh, the uh, capsule, as it's entering, will adjust its attitude and make sure that it has the right kind of entry, um, uh, uh, entry angle so that it doesn't skip off the atmosphere and it doesn't come in too shallow and burn up uh, uh, entering the atmosphere. Because the Mars atmosphere is very thin, they really have to get this right because it's um, it's very easy to just be a, a degree or so off and blow the whole thing. So one minute after that, at 3.39 Eastern, is going to be the de-spin maneuver. And that's where it will use its thrusters to stop it from spinning. As it's uh, going into its orbit, uh, the um, uh, the capsule will go into a slow spin in order to uh, help keep itself stable in its orbit, as well as uh, make sure that it's able to get the uh, proper measurements to uh, ensure that it's within the correct orbital um uh, inclination that it needs to be for its entry. So at this point, it will use its thrusters to slow and eventually stop its spin uh, during its entry. At this point, it will be traveling at over 10,500 miles an hour. Uh, about one minute after, uh, that will be at 3.40 p.m. Eastern Time, a uh, little over 30 seconds after, actually, uh, it will be about 1,900 miles from the landing site on Mars, where it will drop uh, two of its 154-pound uh, balance masses, uh, which will create a uh, the correct lift-to-drag ratio as it enters the atmosphere about uh, five minutes later. It is currently at that point hitting a very very thin part of uh, Mars's atmosphere um, and about five minutes after that is when it will really begin um, hitting uh, the atmosphere and that's when the heat shield uh, makes 
uh, becomes uh, incredibly important to this. About uh, eight minutes later at 3.48 p.m. Eastern is when the Mars entry begins. So now it's just under 400 miles from the landing site at Jezero Crater, and uh, it will start hitting the atmosphere and uh, heat up, and the heat shield becomes important there. Um, that's also where the biggest loss of signal will happen. Um, prior to that, there will be um, still some signal coming from the uh, spacecraft, but around 3.48 p.m. Eastern, once it hits the atmosphere and once that plasma starts to build up on the uh, the heat shield, it will disrupt the uh, electronics ability to send anything back to Earth, and that's when everyone in uh, NASA and elsewhere are going to be chewing on their fingernails for about seven minutes and hoping for telemetry seven minutes later. At 3.49 p.m. Eastern is where guidance uh, will really begin to kick in, and uh, that is, um, it'll be traveling at about 11,988 miles per hour at that point, uh, using uh, thrusters to help uh, keep itself on course, and it will hit pockets of atmosphere that may be thicker than others, which can bounce it around and put it off target. So this is where it will uh, continue to use the um, uh, the uh, RCS thrusters that you saw in uh, that video that we just played to keep itself oriented in the right direction so it comes in at uh, exactly the right kind of inclination to hit the uh, Jezero Crater landing site. About one minute later, uh, just five minutes prior to touchdown, the autonomous entry system will correct for any remaining alignment errors, and this is basically where they commit to uh, where they want to aim the... Uh, um, uh, I aim the spacecraft. At um, about two minutes later, uh, at 3.52 p.m. Eastern, uh, this is where uh, the straighten up and fly right uh, maneuver comes into play. Uh, so NASA's uh, term for this next phase, uh, or that's NASA's term for this next phase, where it will slow down. Uh, it's now down to about 1,068 uh, miles per hour, and it will eject six more of the balance masses approx uh, approximately 13 miles from the landing site. Uh, also, about that time is where the parachute will deploy, and a lot will happen over the next three minutes. So that parachute, as I mentioned previously, is only really acting as a drogue chute, since there's not a whole lot for it to grab onto. It's just to kind of keep itself stable, since it's now in uh, a more thicker part of the atmosphere. Um, that, uh, that parachute is about 70 feet in diameter and it will still be traveling at twice the speed of sound. Although one of the things I'm kind of curious about with this source is that speed of sound on Earth or speed of sound on Mars. Because I think given the th uh, how thin uh, the atmosphere is on Mars, um, that means that sound travels slower, right? That's a good question. I'm not, I'm not sure for myself. Yeah, I don't remember, actually. So anyway, um, so yeah, at this point... Uh, since the parachute's not enough to slow down Perseverance for a landing, it's still going at about 160 miles per hour at this point. Um, a few seconds later, actually at exactly 3.52 and 39 seconds Eastern, um, about 20 seconds after the parachute deploys, that's when the heat shield will pop off. And in the video, um, that's where you saw that it uh, popped off and fell down to uh, the surface of Mars. Um, this will now expose Perseverance to the atmosphere uh, of Mars. And at this point, the camera and the microphones and other instruments will begin recording. This is uh, when they start uh, beaming back information uh, back to Earth. This is when we'll actually begin to really see the landing in progress once they drop that heat shield. 
Then, uh, just a few seconds later, um, the terrain relative navigation begins and the landing site selection happens. This is a really cool part. Uh, this is actually going to happen while they still have the uh, parachute attached just for a short period. And eventually this is where they will then release the um, uh, release the uh, uh, Perseverance rover and it will begin using the Sky Crane to orient itself to some point where it finds a uh, decent enough location to lower and then um, lower its descent using the rockets and then lower the Sky Crane to release uh, Perseverance rover to a gentle touchdown on the surface, let go of that, and then fly away. Um, this is actually maybe a good point to pause here and talk about the terrain relative navigation system. I think they use something kind of similar on Curiosity, but this is a uh, much newer system now, and uh, let's talk about that for a moment. My understanding of the terrain relative navigation is that it effectively takes pictures of the surrounding landscape and compares them to data that it has stored already to known locations and it tries to find landmarks, etc. Because obviously on Mars, there's no GPS. So it's not like you can navigate to a set of GPS coordinates. Yeah, and it does it all autonomous, autonomously, right? I mean, it's doing all this on its own. So there's so much that engineers had to code into this thing that it has to do by itself during this period of time, including comparing what it's looking at on the terrain to what we have from orbital pictures. Um, it's just incredible. It's actually a really good point that you bring up there that um, since Mars is so far away from the Earth, when it came to um, uh, lunar missions, it would take uh, about one and a half to two, two point something seconds uh, for signals to go from the Earth to the moon and back. Uh, so it would just be like having a, a bit of a laggy um, Skype call or something nowadays to, to compare it. But with Mars being so far away from Earth, it can take anywhere between 3 minutes and 22 minutes for a signal to reach Earth from Mars, depending on where uh, Mars is and Earth are in relation to each other in their respective orbits. Um, at, during this mission, it will take about 11 minutes and 22 seconds for a signal to travel from Mars back to Earth uh, on uh, at mission control. So by the time Mission Control receives a signal that the rover has reached the top of Mars's atmosphere, Perseverance will have already landed or crashed. We won't know for about 11 and a half minutes after that. It's, it's weird sitting here and like knowing that the, the period of time that we're waiting through has already passed at Mars and you know, the, the mission knows what happens. You know, it, it's already done, but we're waiting to find out and that's just, that's just part of space. Um, you know, and we're going to see this a lot more too. But building in autonomy, uh, not just in how you know missions land on places like Mars, but also for, for sample collection, for, for actually doing analyses for driving. Uh, with Curiosity, you know, they they built a whole new system for Curiosity for how the rover can navigate the terrain around itself as it's driving and can stop before it actually would hit something that we didn't realize was going to be an obstacle for it. Uh, it can tell us, you know, that there, there's a problem here where I'm driving. I need to do something different. And so that helps us a lot too, then saving time and building in better commands for the spacecraft when they're driving around. Right, exactly. And I, I like that you brought up uh, all, all the autonomy that has to go into this because um, pretty much for the entirety of uh, this mission, uh, they have to make this uh, make all these systems be able to make their own autonomous decisions. And all NASA can really do is just predict what should be there, set boundaries uh, for if it exceeds this, then do that. If it's under this boundary, then do this. And then tell it to do that, and then wait for upwards of 22 minutes 
uh, for feedback to see was it successful or do we need to do it a little bit differently? And that's actually one of the reasons why, um, uh, if you if you look at previous successful rover missions, why they move so slowly across the surface and will just creep up a, a, just a few centimeters and then take a measurement and maybe creep a few more centimeters that in order to travel just maybe 10 meters distance could take a month. And it's because they have to do so much measurement and calculation and uh, tell, uh, like give give uh, boundaries for these uh, rovers of what they can or, or can't do, and if they need to halt if they hit a certain condition, because there's there's no real time driving. It's it's all all right. Rover, decide for us. Here here are your parameters. Um, <laughs> stick within them, and if not, then we'll wait for your feedback and then figure it out and try again. Percy, take the wheel. Yeah. And it's- <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And it's getting better and better. I mean, eventually, maybe we'll send a robot to Mars that will just go, maybe even with legs, just walk around, collect data, and then and then just decide when to send messages back to us. I think that's actually um, one of the uh, one one of the plans that Boston Dynamics has for the uh, Spot rover. That uh, not not the current iteration of Spot, but um, a, another iteration that they want to build is something that could actually use that kind of uh, autonomous. Uh, machine learning and AI that they have built into it so they could just send that to another planetary body and say, okay, go walk around and just discover things. Figure it out and we'll just wait for the data that you send back. Don't forget Spacebit mm-hmm. as well in their Asagumo walking rover. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, we actually uh, just recently uh, here in Total Space uh, did an interview with uh, Spacebit um, and uh, that's that's going to be a really cool one. It's also, I think, I think the fuselage on that is just about the size of the Ingenuity drone that'll be on Perseverance, and uh, that'll be uh, that'll be crawling along the surface of uh, of the moon. Cool. <laughs> yeah, and it will be released very soon. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So moving on. Um, at 3:54 p.m. Uh, Eastern is when the back shell separation will happen. So this is where um, the the shell. As you saw, uh, where the uh, uh, parachute is connected to it, will release the entire uh, Perseverance rover, its uh, uh, rocket-powered descent crane, and everything. Just pop it out, and it'll just start falling down uh, at uh, terminal velocity to uh, the surface. Um, just sh- uh, just shortly after that, about a few seconds after it releases, is when the engines will fire up. Hopefully, it'll keep it in a uh, stable orientation. And about 45 seconds later, at 3.54 and 45 seconds Eastern Standard Time, this is it. So this is where it's about, uh, has 69 feet to descend. Nice. Um, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to. Uh, so this is where the rockets will continue the uh, hovering maneuver using that um, uh, using using the uh, onboard system to uh, determine what would be the safest landing uh, spot, uh, the terrain relative navigation system to find uh, where to finally place the rover down. And it it says here that in the timeline, just a few seconds after that, it'll be hovering at about less than two miles an hour. It says just a few seconds later, like five seconds later, it will actually begin lowering the rover and... Um, uh, it'll use uh, 20-foot cables to lower the rover uh, and then disconnect and fly away. But this is actually one of the things that we were discussing before this stream and not sure how long actually can the rover 
uh, can can the um, sky crane hover and if it sees that there's too much of a rocky terrain it just kind of shifts over a little bit how far can it go how long can it hover not sure on that so it's something that uh, I couldn't find in the press kits either so mm-hmm. that's definitely a question that we should send the team if, if we can yeah so be interesting to know uh, how much how much fuel capacity it has to search for uh, safe landing sites, but has some amount. Um, it'll uh, end up uh, a- around 3.54 and 48 seconds p.m. Eastern. Uh, the rover will drop from the descent stage uh, by 20-foot cables, and uh, that's using the sky crane. And as the rover separates, as it's being lowered, uh, its wheels will also deploy and uh, be prepared for landing. And then just a few seconds after that, um, wheels down, the sky crane will detach, well, the rover will detach its uh, connections to the cables. Sky crane will fly off and go impact some part of the surface, and mission begins. Speaking of mission begins, we have a question from one of our patrons, Warhawk, for Dr. Lau. Um, it's, uh, how will the Perseverance mission data affect your extraterrestrial biology research? Well, so for myself, I'm, I'm not currently doing work with any of the data from, from Perseverance, so I should, I should say that up front. Uh, a lot of my work was more on extreme environments here on Earth, polar environments, and then comparing those to places like Europa and Enceladus. Um, but I also have so, some research that is relevant to Mars and also relevant to Percy and Curiosity, where we're looking at iron and sulfur-rich minerals uh, in a valley in the Arctic, that very well likely could also occur in certain places on Mars. Um, Mars has a lot of a lot of oxidized iron at the surface, hence the red planet. Um, and so that's super important. And like I mentioned, I've done a bunch of Raman spectroscopy as well. Um, but for me, I, I'm, I'm more of, you know, just sitting here, just reading about it and, and loving the data that's it's coming in. Uh, I have a lot of colleagues in astrobiology, though, who are involved with Sherlock and with Pixel, who will be part of those papers, um, analyzing the data, trying to figure out if we found organics, uh, what they are, what they could imply about potential signs of life. Uh, and so there's definitely a lot that we'll be doing with the data uh, in the community of astrobiologists. Um, plus, it's really important to remember, this is also part of a sample return mission or series of missions. Uh, and so not only uh, will, will Percy be doing all this really cool research with Raman spectroscopy and, and, and X-ray chemistry and all this really cool stuff, but it will also be collecting samples. And so as we're going along and, and using all these instruments to, to analyze the rock and look for signs of life, we'll also be figuring out which pieces of rock, which samples are the best to put into these little tubes, these little sample caches, uh, and then store them uh, together on the surface so that a later mission can come and pick up these samples and then launch them back to Earth. Uh, and so this is a, a multi-mission series of things that have to happen to bring those samples back. Uh, but like for myself, I've done research using synchrotrons. Uh, these are large particle accelerators where we use the, the x-rays coming off of these particle accelerators to do really, really important mineralogical chemistry work. Uh, and we can't fly a giant synchrotron, a, a giant particle accelerator. You can't take that to Mars. Um, but if we bring samples back, we can use really high precision instruments like synchrotrons, uh, really awesome microscopes and other things in our laboratories to study these samples. And so the sample return is, is also really exciting. I mean, and there's so many cool things about this mission. I mean, with helicopters and oxygen experiments, doing chemistry on the surface, and then sending samples back. And so there's just so much that's going to come out of it. Yeah, for sure. And actually, um, I, I like that you're talking about all of the um, uh, things that they're going to do to uh, 
uh, do sample returns and so forth, this actually might be a good point to uh, check out the second video that we have queued up, uh, Mission Overview, NASA's Perseverance Mars Rover. No worries, I will get that going. One second. I'm actually going to have to load it up for myself as well, because one thing I found uh, producing this is when I play the videos, it will play the audio for everybody watching on the stream, and you guys have your own videos, but it won't play it back to me, listening. <laughs> so I, I just get the video and no sound. <laughs> so it was the overview, yeah? Yes, the mission overview, NASA's Perseverance Mars rover. Bear with me one moment, I haven't started it yet. Okay, I've got it here for myself now as well, so one moment... Okay, it's going to be playing on the stream now. You know, Mars is the closest place that we can reach with robotic exploration that we think had a really good chance of having ancient life. The Perseverance rover will land at a location called Jezero Crater. Jezero Crater is a very interesting place. It's a crater that once held a lake. There are a lot of craters on the surface of Mars that could have once hosted ancient lakes, but not every crater that we think had a lake actually preserves evidence that that lake was there. It had an inflow channel and it had an outflow channel. That means it was filled, the crater was filled with water. In Jezero, we have probably one of the most beautifully preserved delta deposits on Mars in that crater. This is a wonderful place to live for microorganisms and it is also a wonderful place for those microorganisms to be preserved so that we can find them now so many billions of years later. There is no other place on Mars that has the unique combination of a lake setting, a beautifully preserved delta, and the diverse mineralogy that we have in Jezero Crater. So it's truly a special landing site. The major goal of the Perseverance mission is to investigate astrobiology on Mars, and in particular, to address the question of whether life ever existed on Mars. The Perseverance rover starts with a design that's very similar to Curiosity, but we've added to it a whole new set of science instruments. And these science instruments were purposefully selected to help us in the search for biosignatures. We're gonna be taking uh, microphones with us. For the first time, we're gonna have uh, that human sense on another planet. Perseverance carries with her a grand experiment in space-faring technology, a helicopter, the name of which is now Ingenuity. One of the major upgrades that Perseverance has from Curiosity is that it's able to self-drive for a distance of up to 200 meters per day. As the rover is driving, it's literally building the map of the road it's driving on on Mars. Scientists for years have told us that to really unlock the secrets of Mars, we have to bring samples from Mars back to Earth. So what Mars 2020 is going to do is to drill samples, put them in small tubes, we're going to seal it in its own individual tube, we set them on the surface to provide a target for the second two missions, which hopefully will get in development in the next several years and could potentially get the samples back to Earth by 2031. Perseverance is a very, very profound first step in both our understanding of our place in the universe and a stepping stone towards human exploration on Mars. <laughs> so one of the things that they said at the uh, tail end of that video is that one of the to-dos with this 
is having a way to send those samples back. That's not part of this mission profile. Uh, they're just uh, collecting the samples and uh, storing the samples, but they have no way yet to return those. Um, what's currently in the works to uh, build that, uh, those return, uh, those sample return missions? Graham? Yeah, the, the current idea is a partnership between NASA and the European Space Agency uh, for ESA to, to have the return craft to launch off the surface of Mars, bring those samples back, and then we have to catch them here uh, at Earth, and then we have to also make sure that when we bring them down to Earth to study, that they're not, you know, somehow contaminating our environment with potential Mars microbes, uh, which a lot of people also worry about. And so there's there's a lot that goes into it uh, with making this actually happen, getting these samples back from Mars. And a lot of people might wonder, like, why not just send a, a mission that's one mission that goes to Mars, collects samples, and launches them back? Um, there are a few reasons for that. It, it, it is somewhat driven by politics and money. Um, but also scientifically, having an, a mission like Percy that, that can do the science at Mars to make sure we get the right samples is super important. Uh, of the 12 people who walked on the moon, only one of them was a geologist. Uh, and guess which one got the actual rocks that were really, really valuable for geologists to study? Uh, it was the person who knew what was going on because they had experience that the other people were trained uh, people like Eugene Shoemaker and other geologists and, and scientists, they, they, they taught the, the Apollo astronauts what samples we wanted to get. Um, but at the same time, having that experience was really important. Um, and so with, with Perseverance, having a trained astrobiologist robot who's actually able to analyze the samples first and pick the right ones to cache is super important because we wouldn't want to just, just you know, land anywhere on Mars and just grab whatever rock is closest and launch it back. Uh, it'd be really cool. But at the same time, we want to make sure we get the, the, the best possible sample if we can, uh, which in the long run will actually save us a lot more money, a lot more time in trying to get really good samples back from Mars. And you mentioned something there about um, one, one major concern is not only contamination, like Earth contamination of Mars samples, but Martian contamination of uh, 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 Earth environment. Mm -hmm. um, what would be uh, the instruments on uh, Perseverance that would give us a definitive answer that there is actually something of that uh, of that nature to be concerned about, that there are microbes present, that there is actually something there that could um, infect life on Earth. What, what would show us that on Perseverance? That's a great question, and I don't think we actually could necessarily say that. Uh, and so I'll, I'll give you a hypothetical. Say with Perseverance, we, we land here in the coming week, and we start using Sherlock and Pixel and our other instruments to, to really get an, an idea of what's going on at Jezero, say we actually find what could be a sign of life. Uh, you're going to have a large, vigorous debate scientifically about that potential detection. Um, you know, we've, we've decided in the community it, it can't just be just one single measurement. It has to be several different measurements coming together to imply biogenicity, to imply life in a sample. Now, of course, if we saw you know a Martian turtle or something, walking in front of one of the cameras, that, that would be pretty definitive. Uh, but say we, we find, you know, some organic, some, you know, microbial sign of life on Mars, it would be really, really hard for us to know how that life might interact with our life. Uh, say, say there is, is life on Mars that's extant, living life right now, and maybe it's in Jezero waiting for us to find it. If we share a lineage, if we share a history, then that life could be extremely dangerous for us because it would likely have very similar biomolecules that could interact with ours. Um, it could be something like a virus, for instance. There's a whole new realm of virology called astrovirology. Uh, there are people who are wondering, you know, 
our virus is a natural form of life that occur, these biological machines occurring in other biospheres. If we bring some Martian viruses back in those samples, we need to be very careful in not releasing them because they'd be extremely difficult to measure with any of the instruments that we have right now uh, at Mars, uh, let alone getting them down to Earth where we can actually look at them first and figure out there's something going on there. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done. But say, say we have a different, a different history. Say life originated on Mars separately from life on Earth. Uh, then we really don't know what to expect. Maybe that life really can't interact with our life. Maybe enzymes and things like that are entirely different. Or maybe that life is really, really good at consuming Earth life. Uh, there are so many things that could happen there that we need to be really cautious about. Uh, and I think any sci-fi nerds uh, in the audience might remember Andromeda Strain from Michael Crichton. Uh, he might have been the, you know, the first to really propose this idea in a really interesting way of, you know, what happens if we get an alien sample that actually can can harm human life? Uh, you know, we don't we don't want to contaminate our planet with with life that could somehow just bloom and start eating everything that we know. And before you know it, you know, Earth really is taken over by Martians. Yeah, great. Thank you. Uh, it's a little bit scary to think about, but um, yeah. also kind of kind of fascinating because um, as as you mentioned there wouldn't be anything that would definitively state uh, uh, with the current instrumentation that, yes, there is life there, and it is alive, and it um, may, or, may or may not be dangerous uh, to life on Earth. That's a um, little, little bit frightening. <laughs> well, we do know that perchlorates um, are harmful to biological molecules. Um, the perchlorate, we, we believe that when Curiosity was taking samples, the reason why it was always coming back negative was because the perchlorate was uh, contaminating the sample somehow. So yeah, so the perchlorate salts at the surface of Mars um, are basically like poison for, for life as we know it. Um, a friend of my, mine uh, who studies astrobotany, uh, for instance, likes to point out that in the Martian, uh, Mark Watney would be dead uh, because you, you just can't grow plants and, and from perchlorate-rich soils and eat them. Uh, you're going to end up very sick and die. Uh, you'd have to wash the perchlorates out. And there are people right now who are trying to figure out, you know, when we send humans to Mars, how do we actually get the perchlorates from the surface out of the, the Martian regolith to use that regolith for things like growing plants um, and stuff like that? But but there's an interesting thing there, right? Like perchlorates are harmful for biological molecules for life as we know it. But maybe there's a Martian biology that loves perchlorates. And maybe right in the near surface somewhere, a few centimeters down, there are, are creatures that thrive in perchlorate because it's, it's rich in their environment. Uh, we really don't know. Uh, and so while the perchlorates are part of why they think the, the Viking landers uh, couldn't have found life is because those perchlorates would break down organic molecules at the surface. Um, even with that, there, there's still a lot of interesting chemistry going on with the perchlorates themselves. But that's also assuming um, life as we know it, that uh, there, there could be some kind of life form uh, that maybe uh, thrives on uh, perchlorates. It, it, it's, it's hard to say. Because we we only understand life from the single perspective of what can live and survive on Earth. Um, there could be a completely different kind of life form uh, that uh, lives and thrives on on Mars. I mean, I've I've even seen that uh, it's it's possible that there could be uh, silicon-based uh, life forms that could survive there. That it would just be really difficult for us to to understand currently. There are some estimations as to how that could look like. But um, would it actually be something that uh, would have that same kind of sensitivity? Would it be something that could be a danger to us? Would it be something that uh, could even survive or thrive in an uh, Earth atmosphere? There's a lot of really interesting questions here. And 
Yeah. Uh, and remember, like oxygen breathing, uh, there's, a, there's a good chance if there are some aliens out there, they probably think we're pretty weird for breathing in oxygen. Uh, oxygen is also highly reactive with organic molecules and breaks molecules down and causes all yep. kinds of issues chemically. And yet we breathe in this toxic molecule for a lot of other life forms. And it's because it's a part of our environment. We evolved with it. And, and life on Earth has really created it. It's driven the oxygen in our atmosphere. And so it's, it's very dependent on the environment. And so a lot of us in astrobiology, we think that we, we really need to understand how chemistry evolves with the environment, how biology evolves with the environment around it. Uh, to figure out what we should expect. And for silicon-based life, you know, it's been something we've, we've talked about a lot. There are some really good review papers out there more recently looking into potential chemistry for silicon-based life forms, but we, we still don't know if that could actually happen. And if we have a world that has enough carbon present to make, you know, carbon-to-carbon -carbon bonds and these long molecules with carbon, why would life want to use silicon is the next big question. Um, and so we, we have a lot that we have to figure out there if it's even possible. And you were mentioning something about uh, the means of detecting uh, these things earlier before the recording. Uh, we were talking, excuse me, about uh, the detections of or the reported detection of signs of life on Venus and how that actually can um, be a little bit overhyped, to, to put it mildly, uh, as to uh, there are things that could indicate the potential of uh, uh, signs of life. But what it actually really indicates uh, may be something entirely different. Um, so maybe let's uh, talk about that for a moment and what kind of challenges we might face with the interpretation of measurements coming from Perseverance on Mars, how those two might relate. I have an interesting idea. How about we let Miko tell us how much he remembers from his deep dive with Graham Lau? <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> well, I can, be, I can say we talked about Venus, we talked about Europa, and stuff, but I don't remember the exact. Well then, Graham? <laughs> I don't know if you can hear my son in the background over here. I have a toddler at home who's having a lot of fun right now, and he's he's being quite loud. But um, yeah, so there, there is there is some signs of life here in the background on my microphone as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the, 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 the phosphine issue with Venus. Uh, we should we should back up a little bit because you know you, you saw in the in the newspapers uh, late September, uh, early October of last year. Journalists saying, you know, scientists say phosphine is on Venus. It's a sign of life um, and, and headlines like that. And, and that's really not what happened. Um, so in the, in the original paper from these researchers, uh, they used two different radio telescopes. Uh, one is the James Clerk Maxwell Telescope in Hawaii. Uh, the other one is down in South America. It's called ALMA. It's the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array. Uh, using these two telescopes, uh, first with, with James Clerk Maxwell, um, the researchers found... Uh, in their spectra of emissions of radio waves from Venus, what appeared to be a little dip in the data at a region suggesting that the atmosphere of Venus had a molecule whose bonds were at the right, the right kind of energy to absorb that radiation, to absorb the, 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 the radio waves at that level. Uh, and that's basically how spectroscopy works. We're looking at emissions and absorptions of light in various ways. Uh, and so they, they had a potential finding of, of this phosphine, and it had been predicted um, earlier that, that this could be on Venus as well. It could be used as a biosignature uh, for life on exoplanets. And we've found this molecule, phosphine, which is a phosphorus atom bound to three hydrogens. Uh, we, we found this, we, we, we've many times found it on Jupiter and on Saturn, but we have really good chemical ideas, a, a good hypothesis, a, a working hypothesis for how that phosphine can form 
in the environments of the atmospheres of Jupiter and Saturn, we don't have any, any way for it to form on Venus that we know of. Uh, but these researchers, they, they wanted to make sure they had really good data, and so they then got some time on ALMA, a far more uh, uh, high-resolution instrument, a much better instrument for collecting those data, and they saw that same dip in the data. Uh, at a region where it could be the, the bonds between the phosphorus and the hydrogen that are, are causing this dip in those data. Uh, and so it's a really cool finding, and they did the right thing. They, 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 they took two different instruments to get the same measurement. Uh, they analyzed their data a bunch of times, and then they put together this paper. And in the paper, they say, you know, this appears to potentially be phosphine. We don't have a current model for how phosphine can form in the Venusian atmosphere based on our knowledge of the geochemistry of Venus, based on our knowledge of the photochemistry of the Venusian atmosphere, how light from the sun is interacting with the atmosphere. And so what they basically conclu concluded was this could potentially be a sign of life, but we need more data to find out. Uh, and I, I know a bunch of the researchers on that paper. One of them is also a fellow scientist with Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. Uh, Science. And I had a chance to chat with him in depth about the, the finding, and, and they were very careful to not say, this is life. Um, instead, they were like, you know, this could be important. Let's go find out. And now what you ha probably haven't heard, because it's not been as newsworthy, is there's been a continued debate since then. And many other researchers have now been analyzing their data. Uh, they've gone back and reanalyzed the data from ALMA and James Clerk Maxwell telescopes. And uh, a re very recent paper from the last two weeks uh, which you can read on a preprint and archive, basically they weren't able to find that same dip in the data. Uh, and another fellow scientist from our, our institution is also on this paper saying there is no phosphine based on their analysis of the data. And then another paper has recently come out saying that if that dip is real uh, and it's really there, it is most likely from sulfur dioxide, uh, which is a sulfur atom bound to two oxygens, uh, in the atmosphere of Venus. And we know there's lots of sulfur uh, and oxidized sulfur, especially in the atmosphere of Venus, which we should expect. There should be sulfur dioxide there. Um, and so th this debate continues. It's ongoing. And I, I wouldn't want to say one way or the other if there's phosphine there, but it's really intriguing. If it is there, we need to, we need to find out if it's there. And if it is, we need to figure out where it's coming from. And if it is not a sign of life, if there's some weird geochemistry going on um, with Venus that we just don't know enough about yet, because we really haven't had a lot of landers uh, on Venus, then that's really important because, like I said, phosphine has already been implicated as a potential sign of life for exoplanets. And so it's really, really good to figure out whether or not that's, that's really true. And whether or not, if we find phosphine on another world around another star, whether or not that's a sign of life or if it's a sign of similar processes to Saturn and, and Jupiter, or if it's something else like what we're seeing with Venus, if it's really there. Um, and so this happens in science, though. You know, you, you have the headlines come out, they're attention grabbing, but you don't really get the rest of the debate, which is what science really is. Science is, it's not just a single person, it's lots of people working together in these large teams who they have data, they make interpretations from those data, and then other scientists will basically analyze and, and figure out are those interpretations correct? Was the data collected appropriately? I mean, there's so many things that go into it. And so the phosphine on Venus thing is, is going to be an ongoing issue for some time yet. Oh, great. Thank you. That was a, a very thorough <laughs> uh, answer on that. Um, so what do you uh, what do you think uh, might we face similar kinds of challenges with analyzing data on Mars uh, through the Perseverance rover and uh, also through the instruments on Ingenuity? Um, could we could we face similar uh, uh, issues with finding a 
clear answer as to what it is actually detecting and what does that mean? Absolutely. Uh, well, first off, so in- ingenuity really is just a test. Uh, it does have some instruments on board, but but um, we, we have got to be careful not getting too carried away with anything ingenuity is doing. It's really just to show that we can do powered flight uh, on Mars. And like I said, if it, if it only gets one flight and then crashes when it's trying to land the first time, that'd still be really cool to me. Um, but, you know, with, with the, the instruments we have on board Perseverance and looking for, for signs of life, we could make an analysis with several of the instruments together on Perseverance and you would hear people say, this could be life. Uh, again, though, the scientists will be very careful un- unless, again, we see some Martian creature walking in front of the cameras and we have like definitive evidence of, you know, Marvin the Martian walking by with his death ray. Uh, we're going to have to analyze the rock looking for potential signs of uh, morphology, like the shapes of cells or past organisms, looking at how the, the, the materials in the rock were laying down. Um, so, so the textures of the rock. Uh, but we need more than that. You know, there are many things on Earth that form the structures that are similar to cells, and they do it abiotically. They do it without life. Uh, you can take a, a bunch of detergent, mix it into some water, and you can see those things starting to, to, to clump together into cell-like structures. Um, the same thing happens with oils uh, when mixed in waters. And so you have to be very, very careful in how you interpret things like shapes and sizes and textures. And so then we'll go to the next step, which is using the Raman spectrometer and, and doing the mineralogy, looking at the minerals that are present and the various environments in which they were, they were laying down to figure out should those minerals be there uh, in the pre- without the presence of life? Do we need life to explain these minerals? Then we can look at the organic molecules we find uh, using these instruments. Uh, can the organics tell us something about potential biogenicity? And, and so you start having this layering term where you have a bunch of potential things that... T- by themselves, one single thing wouldn't impl- implicate life, but bringing them all together, you could actually start saying, this appears to be a biosignature. Uh, and then, again, the scientists probably still won't have a paper that says, we found life on Mars. It'll probably be, here are the data. It could be life. Let's figure out, if it's not life, what's going on. Uh, and that's usually the approach that we take. Um, however, you know, if, if we do find definitive signs of life with this rover, I mean, it'd be you know, ground shattering, it, it would change everything for a lot of us uh, to figure out that we're not alone. And then we have to go the next steps of, of really learning about what this life is. Do you think we actually could find those definitive signs other than uh, Marvin the Martian walking in front of the camera? Um, can we find definitive signs yet? Or do we just not yet have the instrumentation necessary? I think yes and no. So I, I again, it depends on what we find. You know, if we get lucky and we find uh, that maybe, maybe the Delta of Jezero, for instance, happened to be an oasis of life uh, on Mars long ago. Maybe we'll come upon, you know, just some patch of rocky material that contains an abundance of potential biosignatures for us to look at. That really could allow us to make a, a determination that we, ha- we have found life on Mars. Um, but again, you know, we have to be careful. Uh, as Carl Sagan once said, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. And, and for us to say we have found life on Mars, we need to have extraordinary evidence. We, we need to have the best evidence possible to definitively say this is life. And so while it's possible, I personally don't think you're going to see it happen. I think even if we, we, we find really good evidence that could be life, I think what instead you're going to see is you're going to see all of us in the community saying we need to store those samples in those sample caches we need those samples back here in our laboratories for our microscopes and particle accelerators and all the different instrumentation we can use. Those are the samples we want to get back here 
and really start interrogating more thoroughly. And so I don't think you're going to see anyone say like, this is life on Mars uh, from the scientific community uh, working on the mission. Not that it can't happen, but I don't think it will. But I do think if we bring one of those samples back, we could really do some, some really cool work on it too. And that's where you might find the definitive, this is Martian life. Awesome. Thank you. And uh, to, to borrow uh, one of those words from uh, Carl Sagan, this has been an extraordinary uh, discussion with you. Um, again, really, really happy to have you here. Um, we've been going for a little bit over an hour. I think uh, maybe this would be a good point to go ahead and wrap the discussion. Um, so for anybody who is listening currently on the live stream, uh, you're more than welcome to submit questions and I'd uh, be happy to answer them for the next few minutes. Also, for anybody who is uh, currently listening on Discord, which uh, we only really have um, I, 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 another space nut uh, currently listening in. But yeah, if anybody has any questions, feel free to submit them. Uh, I happy have a to question. ask them. Yeah, go ahead. What do you think the chances are of us finding techno signatures, Graham? Because I know that naturally you're field of expertise is more in biosignatures, but I know more and more that technosignatures are being spoken about. What do you think the likelihood of us actually finding technosignatures may be? Great question, and I love technosignatures. Uh, there's currently a, a seminar series going on from Goddard. Uh, if you look up NASA Goddard technosignatures uh, in, in your web search, you can find it. Uh, anyone's allowed to tune in. Uh, they've been really great meetings. They're usually Wednesday mornings uh, here in the U.S., and so afternoon uh, in Europe. Um, and they've been great meetings. We've had a bunch of scientists who are working in this realm of technosignatures. Uh, so to briefly explain what they are, for those who don't know, a technosignature is a, a more advanced form of biosignature that shows signs of industrial or technological activity. And so we humans produce technosignatures. We've, we've been broadcasting radio waves into space for over a century now. Um, we also, you know, we, we have chemicals that go into our atmosphere because of our industrial activities. A really good example uh, was, was the, the large-scale release of chlorofluorocarbons, or CFCs, uh, before a bunch of nations got together and started creating uh, laws to clean up our air because we noticed those CFCs were degrading our, our, our ozone layer. Um, but we produce these industrial molecules that we don't have a good explanation for how they could arise uh, just on their own you know, in, the, in the geology of a planet. And so looking at exoplanets, maybe, you know, with James Webb Space Telescope coming up, maybe we'll get some really cool spectra from one of these exoplanets of its atmosphere that shows an industrial molecule. So some industrial activity going on. Or, you know, with SETI for a long time, we've been listening to radio waves and looking at light and seeing if there's any patterns in, those, in, those, in the, the light energy coming from other worlds to see if there are aliens communicating sending out messages to, you know, so we can hear from them. Uh, and then there's also some other more grand ideas. And you know, I'm a huge science fiction nerd. Um, I loved Halo, you know, the idea of like a big ring world uh, in orbit around a star. Uh, I love the idea of Dyson spheres. And, and that really came from good science. Freeman Dyson, when he made this prediction of what we now call Dyson spheres named after him, uh, he was arguing that instead of just looking in radio waves for alien technology, we should look in infrared. And his argument was, if an alien civilization is advanced enough to build a large spherical shell around their entire star system to absorb all of the light leaving their star to use for energy, and that, that shell itself should act as a black body. It should be absorbing radiation and readmitting it in the infrared. And so Dyson basically said, you know, let's use an infrared telescope to see if there's any big spheres of infrared, you know, anywhere out there in, in, in our galaxy. Uh, and we... Can, can do that pretty soon with James Webb. Uh, and so maybe we'll find signs of a Dyson sphere. You might have heard of Tabby's star, uh, where we, we saw what appeared to be occultation 
of the light coming from the star that we couldn't explain. And at first, some people wondered, could it be like large rings or structures around Tabby's star that were causing the, 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 this, this, this change in the light? Uh, we now think that was actually caused by more like cometary dust, uh, a bunch of dust out around the star that was absorbing light at different levels as it left the star. But it's still possible uh, that it could be something technological. And so it's worth looking into. But the, these techno signatures, this idea that we could find signs of technological activity out there is really important. We don't know yet if we're alone in the universe or not. We have to admit logically that we could be the only thing. And if that's the case, then we really need to figure out what's going on here with life on Earth. Because, I mean, we almost have an imperative reason then to continue and flourish and to, to spread life elsewhere because that makes us very special. But when you start looking at like the number of stars, the number of worlds, the potential places for life to form out there, it starts to feel like we just can't be alone. There has to be something else. And if that's the case, how long have other worlds had life? Should we expect far more advanced civilizations to be out there? And if they are out there, then maybe techno signatures are one of the more important things for us to look for, for finding signs of life. Uh, and so for, for all of us in astrobiology, techno signatures are a huge growing realm. A lot of people now trying to put their heads into this problem uh, of what to do. Uh, if you're interested in learning more, uh, there is a graduate course uh, at Penn State University uh, in Pennsylvania. Uh, they have a, a resource on their website for the, for the class that has a, a list of all the best research papers uh, through history in this realm of technosignatures. Uh, and so I, I highly recommend checking that out. It's, it's a good place to find all of the old reading, uh, everything from like the 1940s and up of, of how we're actually looking for signs of alien intelligence out there. So we've got two questions that I'm just going to go through quickly and uh, then we will wrap up because I'm noticing it's now like one hour, 27 minutes. <laughs> Um, so the first question comes from Jade Finch scene and it's are the samples powder or core samples or both stroke other the perseverance has a coring drill so it entirely depends on what you're coring into if you core into a stone that has a porous uh, quality then chances are when you core into it it's going to come out as a powder into the sample anyway whereas some stones are quite hard you can core into them and, and retrieve it mostly intact as a core uh, so it entirely depends what you're drilling into and um, the second question is from Susie R one of our patrons and also lead of the TSN fan club <laughs> our number one fan very first fan uh, what can we expect from MOXIE? How are its findings eventually going to scale up to actual oxygen production on Mars, since it will produce in a day about six hours worth of oxygen for a human? Uh, what I can say on that from right now is it roughly produces about, is it 10 grams of oxygen per hour? Um, and the idea is that they, they don't, there's no, uh, information in the press kit what it does say is that in order to support a mission the moxie unit would need to be 200 times larger in terms of the volume it produces it would need to be about 200 times larger so anybody else with anything to add to those two questions just with with moxie remember that is that is a test uh, it's a very important instrument but we're, we're not taking moxie with the intentions of moxie itself being what we use in the future uh, you know, MOXIE is really just to show that we can do this. We can use electrochemistry to split the carbon dioxide to make oxygen and carbon monoxide uh, on Mars. And that, that by itself, if it, if it just does it once, <laughs> I mean, that, that's a cool feat and it shows that we can do it on Mars. Uh, and I've gotten the question a lot, like, why don't we just do that on Earth and just show that we can do it? Uh, and the answer is we have. 
Uh, we've, we've done this a bunch. It works on Earth. We can do it in the laboratory, but we want to show that we can do it with the Martian atmosphere in situ on Mars. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, there was also one other question from the builders uh, that they asked earlier. Um, didn't they say that they would have, quote, live imagery, but isn't the plasma blocking the signals? Yes, technically you're right. Um, and also live, assuming also the 11 and a half minute delay for the signals to come from Mars to Earth. But the the live aspect of it is more going to be that as... Um, uh, as mission control at NASA uh, gets information back from Perseverance throughout the entire journey of uh, starting to enter the atmosphere until they get to wheels down, as they get that feedback, they will be reporting live to uh, the to the press, to the world, as to what they are discovering uh, through all this, whether or not uh, it successfully did make it wheels down, or if uh, they lost telemetry and so forth. Um, the the audio and video will actually take some time later to receive that because uh, one thing to bear in mind is that. Um, in order to send signals from Mars, uh, I believe they're uh, with uh, Perseverance, what they're actually going to do is beam that up to a relay satellite that's orbiting uh, Mars that will then uh, uh, cache that information and then shoot that back to Earth. I'm not sure if they will be signal uh, sending signals directly from the surface of Mars. I, I'm, I don't remember uh, whether or not. But regardless, in order to get those signals from Mars to Earth, uh, even though they have made a lot of improvements on the uh, technology uh, for this, the the bandwidth rate is still quite small. I think uh, they can only get uh, maybe about, uh, I think they're around like about a megabit uh, per second or so, maybe a little bit more than that. So very, very slow in terms of what you would experience with like your typical um, uh, broadband internet. And even though that's the amount of data that they can send, there's also a very high error rate that comes with that. So there's a lot of signal inter interference and so forth, a lot of data that needs to be replayed and re-replayed uh, so that they can get the the, the final uh, telemetry and so forth. So the, the video and audio um, won't exactly be live so much. What will really be live is the reporting of the telemetry that they're receiving, but that video and audio will come probably some days or maybe a couple of weeks later. And... Um, it will be absolutely amazing to see. Really sure. amazing. All right. And with that, uh, let me just double check. Any other uh, questions that we have time for? Um, I think that's us, I think. Yeah, I think so. So um, first and foremost, uh, Dr. Graham Lau, uh, thank you so much for joining us. It has been an absolute pleasure and honor to have you on our show. Um, it's uh, you, you are... Uh, wise <laughs> about a lot of things when it comes to um, astrobiology and uh, I think this was an absolutely fascinating and enlightening uh, uh, discussion to have with you so thank you so much for joining us really appreciate that yeah thank thanks for having me I really appreciate it great talking to all of you and thank you yeah. for replying to the tweet as well because uh, uh, we were struggling yesterday and uh, we saw your tweet come back it's like oh Graham's replied yes let's go <laughs> so yeah. thank you and once and once yeah. more, um, Graham, uh, how can people find you on the internet? Uh, you want to uh, plug your socials and, and website again? Yep, yeah, the, the best way is cosmobiota.com. Um, but if you want to find me on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at cosmobiologist. On Facebook and LinkedIn, I'm at astrobiologist. Uh, you can also watch my show, Ask an Astrobiologist, from NASA Astrobiology. Uh, we do a once-a-month live stream where I talk with other astrobiologists about their careers and research. Um, and honestly, if you look at my name, I'm, I'm all over the internet now. Great. Thank you so much. 
All right, folks. Uh, so that's uh, that's about it for us. I am Kage, one of the co-hosts of Becoming Multiplanetary, and also joining me today are I'm Rich LB, co-host of Becoming Multiplanetary. I've been Miko, the host of Deep Dive Fridays. And just as we come to the end of each episode, you guys know exactly what I'm going to do. The end of every episode, but wait, I have I have a special scene for this. Uh, you might have actually caught a glimpse of it earlier because I accidentally clicked on the scene by accident. But uh, yeah, let's move over to that now. And here we are, the Patreon scene. <laughs> so big shout out to our patrons. Uh, we actually just got another one whilst we were doing this stream. Anthony, Anthony Mann, thank you very much. Uh, so as at the end of every episode, I always take a moment to thank our patrons. You can see their names scrolling on the right-hand side. And uh, as I've said, Anthony's name has yet to be added because he's literally so new that <laughs> I haven't had a chance to change it yet. But um, So we have Anthony Mann, we have Adrian Moisa, Framrick, Gio Pagliari, Howard Walker, uh, Jishwana Sebastian, Angry Astronaut, Marco, Sammy, also known as Stinger NSW, Susie R, Warhawk, and What About It? Thank you so much for all of your Patreon donations. Uh, as you can see, we just keep doing things to improve the show. Uh, where you know I've worked on doing these overlays for the past few days now. Um, had Kage help uh, with with some of it as well, and uh, hopefully you guys like it. Um, I'm going to be working a little bit more on them over the next coming weeks, and uh, yeah, let me know what you think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and if you uh, like what you've been seeing, uh, please make sure to uh, click like and subscribe, and of course leave a comment if you have uh, any feedback you'd like to give to us. Um, if you'd like to join us in our Discord, you can uh, do so by becoming a patron at uh, patreon.com slash total space and uh, the funds that we've been using from uh, Patreon uh, we actually used to make our new website which you can find at totalspace.net uh, which has all of our podcasts and um, uh, also uh, uh, links our podcast to a uh, series of CDNs that we're now using so that uh, you can have those available across many different platforms so thank you all for joining us and uh, Dr. Graham Lau thank you again so much for joining us uh, pleasure to have you. Great. And uh, see you all next time.